0: Is the 4th of July, this wonderful day when we shoot off fireworks and run 10Ks and wear red, white, and blue and eat barbecue or whatever your freedom traditions are. This is the day we celebrate our freedom. Our second president, John Adams, was one of the leaders in our fight for freedom and he became one of the architects to design the different structures to hold that freedom in place. And late in life, he said this to future generations. Posterity. You will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. See, what Adams knew was that our freedom, although fought for and secure, is something that we are in constant danger of of losing, of forgetting. And Paul knows this very same thing. And in the opening of our text this morning, he makes a similar call. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our freedom, purchased by the crimson currency of Christ's blood, is something that is so easy to turn from and lose. It is something we hear so often about, but I wonder if we actually walk in and enjoy this freedom that is ours. Instead, if we hear, I wonder if when we hear so much about freedom, how abundant and full a life of Christ is supposed to be, yet inside we feel dry and empty as our experience of freedom doesn't quite line up with scripture's big, beautiful picture of that freedom. Paul knew that the young Christians in Galatia were in a very real and present danger of turning from their freedom in Christ. And we, this morning, are in that same danger of turning from that freedom if we have not already. There is a very real threat to all of us that we may know Christ, that we may know his gospel, Much as the Galatians did, and yet not live in the freedom that is ours in Christ. And Paul wants us to grasp that at the very center of being, at the very center of your being, that in Christ is freedom, so cling tight to him. In Christ is freedom, so cling tight to him. Friends, there is an incredible freedom that is ours to enjoy, and Paul wants us to soak in it and to grip it at our very core. So he goes to great lengths to identify a great rival of that freedom, and then he shows us what the true root of our freedom is and what the result of our freedom will be, and those will be our points this morning. We're going to look at the rival of freedom, the root of freedom, and the result of our freedom. So let's look first to this great rival of freedom that Paul identifies. After his opening line that, for freedom, Christ has set you free, Paul identifies this great rival of freedom, this rival that would love to hang a heavy harness on your shoulders and restrict the freedom that is yours in Christ. And he is fired up. You can picture Paul, he's laying down dictating this letter, and he jumps up, runs over, grabs the pen from the scribe, and pens this, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, you will be, verse 3, obligated to keep the whole law, you will be severed from Christ, and you will have fallen away from Christ. Now, and this this is very important, he is not saying that they are going to lose their salvation, but that they can lose their freedom. Paul is writing to people who are already believers. This is family talk. According to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Galatians had already believed the message of Christ crucified. They had received the Holy Spirit. They had made a public profession of their faith, showing that in some sense, they knew their need of Christ's sacrifice to be their righteousness. They had accepted Jesus as their justification, as their way of being made right with God. So according to Paul... It is very possible that we can know salvation is through Christ by grace alone and yet live in slavery. The Galatians, as we've heard throughout this series from Will and from Mark, uh, they were being taught that they needed to accept circumcision, this ritual of cutting a man to identify him as part of God's people, something that went all the way back to Abraham and the Israelites practiced this. And what they were hearing was a distorted or an altered gospel that, according to chapter 1, was telling the Galatians, great, you've been saved by Christ. That's wonderful. Now you need to take on circumcision to fully be part of God's people. It would be really easy for us to miss the reality of what's going on here uh, because and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't think there's anyone who thinks, hey, I need to go be circumcised to be part of God's people. So we might miss what Paul's really getting across here. So let's make it really simple. What the Galatians are being told is that to fully be embraced by God after accepting Christ, they now needed to do something. They were being told that you can be brought into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, but now you need to relate to God through your morality, through keeping the law. And Paul rails against this rival of freedom. In verse 7, he moves to this illustration of a runner. And if you've been watching the Olympic trials, this scene should be really familiar to you. See a runner in a middle distance or a long distance event, they take off out of the block and they're going, they're running the perfect race, But if another runner comes in and cuts right in front of them, their race is over. If someone cuts in front of them, their race is over. And then Paul speaks of a little bit of leaven or yeast that's going to work its way through a whole lump of bread infecting the whole thing. And it brings to my mind the uh, disastrous wreck that you guys might have seen in the Tour de France recently where there was this this woman who on the side of the road had uh, made this little sign that said, Go Grandpa and Grandma. It's a really sweet thing, right? So she's on the side of the road and she's holding up this cardboard sign so her grandparents are going to see it on TV. And the the group of riders, as they're passing her, they're really tight-packed. And one rider at the far edge clips this little sweet sign and he goes down. But everybody beside him and behind him crashes. Everybody. Total cycling carnage. And in this same way, Just a hint or an attitude or teaching that by our obedience, we can help our standing with God, make him love us more, make him favor us more, or maybe you just think, if I do these things, God's just going to like me more. That teaching is a poison that will work its way through your entire life of faith and through your community and make a wreck of it. Paul knows that the great rival of true freedom is this, that once you accept Christ Jesus as your salvation, as your justification, you're being made right with God, it is supremely tempting to think that now you've got to earn his approval, earn his favor by keeping the law. This great rival is called legalism. Now, I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear this word legalism, Maybe you think it's a doctrine of you're going to go be saved by your works. And that's true, but legalism is so much more than that. It's a matrix. It's a web of beliefs and attitudes and feelings about God and how we are now to relate to him. In our heads, we know that we are made right with God only because of Christ. But now we relate to God through our performance. This rival will destroy your freedom in Christ. Maybe it is destroying your freedom this morning. Maybe you have already turned from the freedom that Christ has set you free for. Do you think that God finds you more acceptable, attractive, that he just likes you more because of your good behavior, because of your religious disciplines? Do you think that you now owe God a great debt because he went to such great lengths to have you? then the great rival to freedom has asserted itself, telling you that your performance can earn you something from your father. And Paul says this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither your law-keeping and your morality or your irreligion and your paganism counts, period. It doesn't count. Why? is a bold claim, Paul, why? Let's look there now. You've seen the great rival to your freedom. Paul is now going to show us the root of freedom. Now, there are two words in the midst of all these powerful verses that we might miss, but those two words stand at the center of everything for Paul. Two most important words in these verses. Verse 6. For in Christ... In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In Christ. We so often hear of Christians as being referred to as believers, followers, disciples, all these different labels that in some way refer to a quality about us. I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. I am a disciple. I identify as a Christian. Paul's overwhelming label For Christians, a word that he does not use is those who are in Christ. Over and over again, throughout all of his writings, Paul speaks of being in Christ, being united to Christ. For Paul, it's at the very center of the gospel message and what it means to be and experience life as a Christian in Christ. So if something is this important to Paul, we we probably better understand what it means. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean that you are united to Christ? Very simply, union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Back in Galatians 2 20 through 21, Paul explains it. Now, I want you to listen very closely to what Paul says here because if you this morning are in Christ, then everything that Paul says is true of you. I have been crucified with Christ. Was Paul on the cross? No. But he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Have been. This verb is in the present perfect, meaning it's something that happened in the past, but it has continuing significance, present effects. When Christ died, this thing that happened objectively, you are now Sharing in that crucifixion. You are united to him right now in his death. It is no longer I who live. As one author puts it, the person I was before Christ is literally no longer the person I am. The Christian life is not some message of self improvement. We are talking about totally new beings. In Christ, you are a totally new creation. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Every other religion has a great teacher who lives on in the life of their followers today by their teachings. Buddha, for example. He lives on to his followers by his teachings. They keep him alive by following his teachings. We often think of Jesus this way. He had a great example for us to follow. He has some great teachings. We keep Jesus alive in our life by following those things. No, Jesus is alive right now in a radical way, affecting his followers beyond just his teachings or example. Rather, Christ is in you. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, and you've got to imagine these guys are just devastated. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. And for these these men who had been following Jesus, giving everything to be with him, this would be devastating. But he tells them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. According to Jesus, the only thing better than actually being with Jesus, walking with him, eating with him, talking with him, would be that he would live in you. And if you are a believer, then Christ Jesus literally dwells inside of you. The temple uh, is really important to Paul. And he asked this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The temple had long been this special, unique place where God's people would go and meet with him. Yes, God is present everywhere, but he is uniquely present in his temple. And now you have become God's temple. He dwells in you. He lives in you. This is why St. Augustine can say, God is more near to me than I am to myself. Paul continues, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith is the God-given gift of how you enjoy your union with Christ, how you take hold of God's having taken hold of you. You are in Christ, enjoying all the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection, namely that Christ has justified you. He has made you right with God by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. He has your perfect holiness already accomplished. And now he's working it out in you. And your eternal home is with him and him in you. This is why your circumcision and your uncircumcision don't count. Your righteousness is complete already because you have Christ's perfect righteousness. You are in that perfect righteousness already. And Christ is in you, making your heart and life his dwelling place on this earth. Now, this is a delightful thing. A guy named Sinclair Ferguson, he says that when he was 14, he heard that Christ was in him, and he skipped all the way home. It's a delightful thing, but it's exceedingly difficult to wrap our heads around. It is a mystery that Christ is in us. And a lot like a joke, when you try to explain a mystery, you you really start to lose some of its power. But we're going to try. We're going to try to explain this mystery a little bit. So I'll offer an illustration. That you are in Christ is a little bit like my young son, Bear, who likes to wear my t-shirts. Let me explain. Uh, I ran the Derby Festival Marathon back in April and my son wanted to run it so badly with me, but he can't because he's two and it's 26 miles. So it wasn't gonna happen. So I finished the race and he just wants a part of this race so bad. He puts the medal on, he's wearing it around everywhere. He's so excited, he thinks he ran the race. So I take the race t-shirt that they give you and uh, I gave it to Bear. I said, buddy, this is your shirt and he puts it on. Now as you can imagine, being 6'3 and my son's 2, this shirt doesn't quite fit him. You know, the, the sleeves are down past his hands and it's dragging on the floor and he won't take it off though. He goes to sleep in it, he walks around our neighborhood in it. I'm sure my neighbors think buddy, why can't you buy your son some clothes? But he's obsessed with it. It's everything to him. Here's the point. Even though it doesn't fit him right right now, he's still clothed in it. Now you just got to grow up into it. The fact that you are in Christ is a bit like that shirt on bear. Everything Christ has done, everything Christ is, is not true of you. His obedience, his righteousness, his perfection, it's all yours right now. And it's not going anywhere. We just get to grow up into it. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are to grow up into the mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. We are to grow up in every way into Christ. We are already in Him objectively. It's fixed, it's sure, you can't change it. But now we're to grow up into Him experientially, subjectively, living it out in our own lives. This is why Paul says, through the Spirit who lives in you, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul's not talking about hope like I talk about hope. I hope we have good weather this week. I hope there's great fireworks tonight, some sort of wish, something that we desire, but we don't know if it's going to happen. For Paul, hope is something that he is utterly sure of, confident in, and basing everything else off of. And his confidence is that we will experience this righteousness because we are in Christ. This is why Paul says, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count, period. If you are in Christ, circumcision, your religious duties and your law-keeping, they don't count. It doesn't help you before God. God sees you in Christ. And your uncircumcision, your immorality, your paganism, it doesn't count. You are in Christ, This is the root of your freedom. Your union with Christ. That you are in Christ, and Christ now lives in you. And just as an aside, if you are not in Christ, wouldn't you love for this to be your identity? To be freed from the tumultuous, constant rat race of trying to build an identity by your behavior, by your successes, and it's crushed when you fail. Wouldn't you love to be free of that? And to have an identity that is as fixed and sure as Jesus Christ Himself. Friend, give yourself to the Christ who has given Himself for you. Now let's close by looking at the result of this freedom, or how we now live this freedom in Christ out. Verse 13 For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. See, Paul knows that the flesh that you and I still live in is exceedingly sinful. And it will hear this call to freedom as an opportunity to now just do whatever I want. Who cares what I do now? I'm in the clothing. I'm in the shirt of Christ. I wear him. I've got my objective righteousness secure. I can do whatever I want. He knows that that is where our sinful minds will immediately run. But see, this is just a distortion of the legalism we already talked about. It's just another twisted view of God and His law. It sees God's law as something that's separated from who God actually is, which we know Him to be good and gracious and loving. But we see His law as something restrictive and binding, something that's there to crush our freedom. But indulging our lusts, our gossip, our materialism, the bottle or the internet, that's not freedom. That's just another form of slavery. Rather, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These words should sound very familiar to us. Paul's quoting Jesus here. When Jesus is asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is calling us to a life of holiness, a life of loving God and loving others. But here's the key point. We don't pursue that righteousness. We don't pursue that holiness to make God accept us, favor us, like us, enjoy us. We don't pursue those things to earn something from him. We are called to pursue holiness because this is who you already are in Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are objectively and perfectly holy and righteous before God. And if Christ is in you, then holiness is what his spirit is working within you. He's restoring your heart and your will and your being and your body to love God and love neighbor, this beautiful thing that you were created for. Jess and I bought our first home last summer, uh, and it is a good old-fashioned fixer-upper. It deserves its own HGTV special. Let me tell you a quick story about that. So as soon as we signed the papers, that house was objectively ours. Yes, the majority owner is the bank, but still, it is objectively ours. But then we move in. And you would see Jess in our backyard ripping out bushes and pulling weeds and planting flowers and doing all of these things. And I was inside ripping out floors, trying to rip out showers and messing with things I shouldn't have been messing with. With all that stuff out of the way, we started to rebuild it. It was, at one time, a beautiful home, but it had been destroyed by years of neglect. So we're tiling and laying hardwood and painting and patching walls. What was already objectively ours, we were now making our own by restoring it back to its beauty. And friend, this is what Christ is doing in you now. By his spirit who lives within us. His spirit is ripping out the old fixtures of self-obsession and idolatry and sin, convicting us of these things and the ways that we fail to love God and neighbor. And instead, he's planting and growing and working out a new love for God and his law and your neighbor, obeying his commandments as a way of loving others. He's restoring you back to what you were created for. This is your new identity already objectively we're just learning anew how to live it out learning how to be who we already are and this is what freedom is living out the identity of who we already are so very practically if you are in christ give yourself to the behaviors and the disciplines of loving god and serving others not to earn God's favor or acceptance. He can't accept you or love you or favor you any more than he already does. Do you think he could favor his own son more than he does? That is what we are doing when we think we earn something from him. Live out who we are in Christ. Immerse yourself in God's word and prayer as a way of delighting in the fact that he lives in you. Fight your sin. Serve your family and your church and your neighbor. This is who you already are. The way of freedom is living into who you are in Christ. Become who you are. We're so tempted to relate to God based on our performance. Paul says this is slavery, don't give into it. God views you with the same affection as he does his own son, he views you as having the righteousness of his son. You are in Christ live into this identity. Let's close uh, with this wonderful illustration uh, our friend Luke Reichstraw pointed me to this week. It's from the movie Blood Diamond. Um, a man, There's a man named Solomon, and he's helping Leonardo DiCaprio's character on his mission. And Solomon had lost his son Dia a long time before. See, Dia had been separated from his father through a raid, And then he was enslaved uh, in a child army to an evil warlord. And he comes across his father, and he has a gun pointed to his head. He has no idea who his dad, who's standing right in front of him, he has no idea who he is, because of years of brainwashing and slavery. And his father stands up, and he's staring down the barrel of this gun, and he says, Dia, what are you doing? You are of the Prow Monday tribe. You are a good boy. You love soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits back home for you making plantains and palm oil stew with your sister, and you're her baby. The cows wait for you, and Bakaru, the wild dog who knows no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And the more Solomon speaks, these tears are streaming down Dia's face as he remembers who he truly is. And in doing so, he's freed from the slavery that he's lived in for so long. This is the way of our freedom. In remembering our identity in Christ. And giving ourselves to it. Living it out every day. The Father delights in you. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Uh, You have made us able to call you Father. Indeed, you've sent your Spirit into our hearts, and now we get to cry, Abba, Father. Lord, you've given us such a big and beautiful identity. Let us not trade it for a yoke of slavery, of relating to you on our performance. We are yours in Christ. Lord, give us a love for your law that sees it as a way of living into who we actually are. Lord, give us freedom in Christ. All this we ask in your name. Amen.